Hi, everyone. Welcome to Recovery Road, the intersection of life and sobriety. I am your host, Jareth Rossman. Well, we've made it to episode three, and I really hope you've enjoyed the first couple of episodes. I want to start today's episode by asking a favor. If you listen to episode two and have implemented the Daily Five in your life, I want you to tell me about it. Tell me what you're doing. I want to know how you're doing it, why you're doing it, and when you're doing it. I want you to share with me what's working for you and what isn't working for you. And as I mentioned last episode, the plan is fluid, so maybe you have ideas that I can share that will help others. Now, more importantly, if you haven't implemented the Daily Five, I'd love your feedback on why. Maybe I can help. I will share the feedback on future episodes anonymously, of course, unless you want a little shout out. Hang around until the end of the episode and I'll share the best ways to connect with me or send me feedback. Now, on last week's episode, I gave an inside look into my four days in detox. And as mentioned, today I want to spend some time talking about my additional 30 days in treatment, or general pop as I like to call it. There are so many things, good and bad, that I could tell you about my 30 days in rehab, so I'm going to try my best to stay on course because I want you to find value in what I'm saying but please forgive me if I get a little off track. Rehab is fascinating to me. I would always tell people when I was in rehab that I wanted to travel around the country, visiting facilities as an alcoholic, maybe spending about two weeks in each, then writing a book about all the experiences. Just the people you would meet alone would make for a great book. And I don't mean that in a gossipy or negative way. Addicts and alcoholics are some of the smartest, most talented people you will ever meet. Ask anyone who knows one. I mean, we had doctors, scientists, athletes, artists, musicians, just in my treatment center alone. One of the younger heroin addicts was a med school student who could play the guitar like Clapton and had the voice of Eddie Vedder. That's the lead singer of Pearl Jam, for those who don't know. He'd have been the songbird of our generation if it weren't for the heroin. See, I'm already getting sidetracked. Sorry. Okay. So here's something I want you to know on the front end because I think it will give you a better understanding of rehab in general. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but this was my observation. The alcoholics tended to be older in age, primarily in their 40s and older, and the addicts, typically meth and heroin users, were usually a lot younger, like late teens, early 20s, and a couple in their 30s. Now, I'm not saying this is an absolute, but more as a generality. And the reason being, again, an assumption on my end, is because most heroin and meth addicts don't make it to their 40s and 50s, and most alcoholics aren't drinking enough to become chemically dependent in their 20s and 30s. I mean, I was probably the youngest alcoholic in the entire facility by a few years. Now, rehab is structured probably a lot like a boarding high school, And here's what I mean by that. For starters, the women and men are housed in separate parts of the facilities. Now, there is some overlap at certain points throughout the day, but for the most part, the guys stay with the guys and the ladies stick with the ladies. And for a variety of good reasons. First and foremost, rehab relationships, as they're called, create a huge distraction and cause a lot of drama. Think about it. We're already at an emotionally unstable point in our lives. What better time to fall in love with a girl that you just met five days ago? I mean, what could go wrong? On top of that, 
a lot of the people in rehab are married or have a significant other waiting for them on the outside. And believe me when I say what happens in rehab definitely does not stay in rehab. On top of the drama and distractions, rehab hookups are pretty gross. You've only known most of these people for days or weeks, and some of them were just selling their bodies 10 days ago for money to get alcohol and drugs, or even worse, they were sharing needles. Take it from me. It's best to keep your hands, mouse, and private parts to yourself in rehab. And our rehab took it so serious that if you got caught just passing a note to the opposite sex, they'd kick you out. Non-refundable. It just wasn't worth it for me. I couldn't imagine having to call my parents and saying, Hey guys, I'm coming home early. Oh, you're being released for good behavior? Well, actually, I fell in love with little Susie in room 14 and got caught passing a love note, so I'm going to need you to come pick me up. Nope, not happening. Not to me, at least. Seems ridiculous, but it happened to multiple people while I was there. Now, back to the structure. Everything was on a timeline, from the time you woke up to the time you went to bed, even on weekends. And I'm going to take a couple of minutes to give you a quick overview of what a standard day in rehab looked like for me. So... Everyone was supposed to be up for breakfast around the same time, which I believe was 7 or 8 a.m. Some people had to get up earlier if they had meds to take. Now, breakfast was usually about an hour, so you'd eat breakfast, go smoke cigarettes, then you had to make sure your bed was made and your clothes were put away because they'd do a room check each morning to make sure the rooms were tidy. Now, after breakfast were chores. Everyone had weekly chores assigned by the team lead, who was voted on weekly by the rehabbers, another word I think I just made up. Chores ranged from sweeping and mopping the floors to scrubbing the toilets and showers. Remember last episode when I said you had the first weekers and so on? Well, guess who got to scrub toilets their first week? And boy, were there a lot of toilets. Now, in my second full week of General Pop, I was surprisingly chosen to be the team lead and had to create the chore duties myself. I decided I would put my best foot forward, and secretively, I thought if I did a good enough job, I might just get released from treatment completely for good behavior. Yep, no shot. So, anyways, after chores, you'd typically have some type of morning meditation, then a group therapy session with a counselor, most of whom were recovered addicts or alcoholics themselves. Now, I always look forward to group therapy, because you never knew what you would see or hear. Most of the groups had 10 to 15 people, ranging from extreme introverts to extreme extroverts. A wide variety of topics were discussed in those sessions, which enticed a lot of emotions. The good, the bad, and the ugly. But that's to be expected in a room full of 15 guys. And it was honestly beautiful because it was raw and uncut. Now, something I specifically remember about these group sessions is that at some point, we each had to write our own autobiography and share it with the group, and we had to make it detailed and personal. I looked forward to the days when people were sharing their story because everyone's story was so unique and different, and movies and entertainment tend to sensationalize and glorify drug use. Not in here. Not in these sessions. These stories gave a first-hand account of the pains and the traumas and the consequences of addiction and alcoholism. 
the overdoses, the jail time, the lost custody battles, the parents that no longer take their phone calls or let them in the house because they're sick and tired of being lied to and stolen from. But in here, and in these same sessions, you also see the good. You see the guy who wants to be a good father to his children, a good brother or sister to his siblings, a good boyfriend or husband to his spouse. Now, I knew the dreaded time was coming when I'd have to share my autobiography. Now, today, I'm pretty much an open book. But back then, I wasn't very big on sharing personal information about myself with complete strangers, especially in a group setting. So I did a little digging for you, and I actually found the notebook with the autobiography that I wrote and shared in rehab. Yep, still have the date written down right here. September 7th, 2016. Holy sh... Wait, today is September 7th. Oh boy. Holy smoke, that's incredible. No way. The same day I'm recording the podcast about it, that's just crazy. And I'm literally just now realizing that. Wow. Anyways, I'm not going to sit here and read it to you, but I will share something very personal from it that I hope will give you some insight into me as a person. And I just want you to forgive me for that minor freak out. I still kind of have chills with this whole date coincidence. (laughs) But anyway, so something that I want to share with you that's extremely personal for me. You've heard me mention my parents throughout the episodes, and I have two of the best parents a child could ask for. Literally, the two best. But I'm actually the product of a one-night stand. I've never met my biological father, nor do I know his name or who he actually is. And honestly, I don't really think about it much I really only think about it when it gets brought up in conversation, which isn't very often. Talking about it right now is probably the first time I've actually thought about it in months. And when I do think about it, it's more about the what-ifs. But I was lucky enough to have a mother that showered me with enough love and support that equated to having 10 parents. She was a single mother, so we were very poor, but she worked tirelessly day in and day out to make sure I had everything I needed and some. She really is the true definition of the word sacrifice. And then, 21 years into life, I hit the stepdad lottery. And I hate using the word stepdad because he has been more of a dad to me than some fathers are to their own biological children. Now, the reason I shared that piece of the story is because it relates to my desire to help addicts and alcoholics. I want the alcoholic mothers and alcoholic fathers to get the help they need so they can be there for their children and can shower them with the same love and support I received from my mom as a child growing up. And I know that this is a top priority for them. The reason I know that is because anytime I work with an alcoholic mother or an alcoholic father and I ask them the why behind them wanting to get sober, without a doubt, without a question, the number one answer if they have children is so they can be a better parent to their child and be involved in that child's life. Okay, so obviously I'm getting a little sidetracked again. I was trying to give you a daily overview But I just spent the last 10 minutes talking about group sessions and we haven't even made it to lunch yet. So, after group sessions is what we all look forward to each day. Lunch. 
not just because of lunch, but because you got an additional hour after lunch for free activity time. You could swim, play basketball, work out, read, or literally do nothing. So it was about a two-hour window to be as active or lazy as you wanted. Now, as I mentioned, I was starting to feel like my old self again. And when I say my old self, I mean all the way back to high school. But I was still 30 pounds overweight, so I used that time to be as active as possible. Now, after activity hour was another couple of hours of informal group sessions or individual therapy sessions with your counselor, then before you knew it, it was time for dinner. Now, after dinner, two or three times a week, we were bused to AA meetings around Lafayette. You were allowed to attend meetings once you'd been in treatment for, I think, about a week or so. Now, the bus rides in AA meetings are what we lived for in treatment. But for the sake of time, I'm going to save those stories for the next episode. Now, after you returned from the meetings at night, you had about an hour or so to wind down before you had to be in bed at 9. We typically watch TV, take our nightly meds, listen to people playing their guitars, or talk about all the crazy stories from our past life. I remember talking with one guy who was in there for Adderall and alcohol. So I asked him, how much Adderall were you taking? He said, oh, 12 to 15, 20 milligram pills every day and drinking about a fifth of vodka. So naturally, my follow-up question was, what the hell do you do on 300 milligrams of Adderall and a fifth of vodka all day? I'll never forget his response. He looked at me with a huge smile on his face and said, Watched a lot of porn. Okay then. (laughs) I mean, you never knew what was going to come out of someone's mouth in treatment. Him and I weren't very close in treatment, but I have kept up with him some, and I am happy to report that he seems to be doing very well in life and helping a lot of people in the process. I honestly don't even recognize him when I see him in pictures. He's changed so much. Now, at 9 p.m., you have to be in your room and lights have to be out by 10. For most people, this hour or so wouldn't be very eventful and not worth mentioning on a podcast. But most people didn't have my roommate. Oh, did I forget to mention that you share a room with someone in treatment? Remember when I said a few minutes ago that I hit the stepdad lottery? Well, when it comes to rehab roommates, it's like I went all in on black at the roulette table at the casino and the little bitty ball stopped on the green zero. You know when you're one of the first people to get a seat on the plane and you watch each person board the plane with this great anticipation, hoping you don't get that one person sitting next to you? Well, that's who I got. The one person you hope to never get. He was a severe alcoholic in his mid to late 40s. He wasn't drinking as much as me on a daily basis, but he had been doing it a lot longer than me, and he was in the late stages of cirrhosis of the liver. And his reason for being in treatment was due to his cirrhosis. He needed to be put on the liver transplant list, but if you need a new liver due to alcoholism, you have to be alcohol-free for six months. Then once you are alcohol-free for six months, you're added to the list, to the bottom of the list. And honestly, that's how it should be. If I destroy my liver due to my alcoholism and poor decisions, then I deserve to be last in line. Now, let me quickly explain what cirrhosis of the liver means. 
It's the four words no alcoholic ever wants to hear. Cirrhosis is a late stage of scarring of the liver caused by many forms of liver diseases and conditions, including chronic alcoholism. Each time your liver is injured, whether by disease or excessive alcohol consumption, it tries to repair itself. In the process, scar tissue forms. As cirrhosis progresses, more and more scar tissue forms, making it difficult for the liver to function. And advanced cirrhosis is life-threatening. And typically, the liver damage done by cirrhosis generally can't be reversed. Now, some of the common side effects are bleeding, nausea, yellow discoloration of the skin, or jaundice as it's better known, and for the medically trained, something referred to as wet brain, which is a real thing, believe me. Basically, the liver can't adequately remove the toxins from your blood, which causes a buildup in the brain, creating serious mental confusion. Now, this guy had all of these symptoms, including something else called peripheral neuropathy, which is a certain form of nerve damage. So his entire body constantly had that burning pins and needle sensation. So not only was it extremely difficult to talk to him, but he walked around with the weirdest things attached to his body trying to ease that sensation. One day, you'd see him with a garbage bag tied around his legs with elastic cables, and the next, he'd have loose leaf shoved in his pants with sweatpants over his arms. I'm not making this up. And to top it off, I'd have to watch him put these outfits together each morning. Like, no, dude, your underwear goes on your legs, not on top of your head. And at night, he'd try to talk to me while I was trying to fall asleep. I really couldn't understand anything he was trying to say, so instead of entertaining it, I would just start to fake snore really loud for about five minutes. Didn't matter. He'd just keep talking like we were having a full-blown conversation. I really felt bad for the guy, but he was so mentally confused that you just had to let him be. I'd help him where I could, but there was really only so much I could do. I left most of the heavy lifting to the nurses when it came to that guy. Now, that's where I'm going to stop today in terms of my journey related to my time in treatment. You'll have to tune in next week when I talk specifically about my third week, the most dreaded week in treatment, family week, or as it's better known inside of the facility, hell week. So at the end of last episode, I mentioned that I would address a question that I've been getting a lot lately, and some have called it a controversial question. To me, it isn't controversial, but I do think it's important that I address it. And the question is this, what AA meetings do I go to, and how involved am I with the AA program? And my answer is this, I don't attend any AA meetings and I'm not actively involved with any AA program. And if you've listened to any episodes, you'll know that it's important for me to give you some context to my answer so you can understand the why behind it. First, I want you to know that I attended probably over 200 AA meetings since my recovery journey started five years ago. So it's not like I've never been to a meeting or actively worked the AA program and the 12 Steps. I attended three or four meetings each week while in treatment, then at least another one or two meetings every day for the next 90 days when I lived in the sober living home. Then I was going to a few meetings every week when I first moved back to Baton Rouge. 
I also attended AA conferences on the weekends, went to a weekly big book study, and actively worked with a sponsor for, I think, about the first three or four months I was out of treatment. So I'm intimately familiar with meetings, the 12 steps, working with a sponsor, and AA's program as a whole. And I actually still keep in touch with my sponsor to this day. He's a great guy, and he's sponsored countless people during his many years of sobriety. Now, AA has helped hundreds of thousands of people, probably millions, since being founded by Bill W. and Dr. Bob in 1935, and it will continue to help millions. AA was honestly critical to my sobriety success, especially early on. It gave me a fundamental understanding of what it meant to be an alcoholic, which is why I recommend reading the big book if you are at any point in recovery, or if you just want a comprehensive understanding of what it's like to be an alcoholic. Another big benefit of AA is the knowledge. Many members have years, if not decades, of sobriety, and with that time frame comes knowledge and wisdom. So when you surround yourself with those people at AA meetings, it gives you the ability to absorb that knowledge and wisdom. Not only do you get the knowledge, but you get a communal support system to help you walk down this road of recovery. Now, as I mentioned in the previous episode, I started down a journey of research dedicated to self-growth and self-improvement when I got back home. I was reading more, praying more, working out more. I picked up new hobbies. I started volunteering. And a quick shameless plug, if you're looking to dedicate time to a noble cause, please look at Miracle League. It's an organization that helps children with all types of disabilities, mental and physical, play a baseball game each week, and we are always looking for volunteers. I promise you, it'll be the best hour you spend each week. And if you can't volunteer, then come join us on the field and come watch a game. You'll leave better off than you came, and that I promise. Okay, back to what I was saying. I was basically working the Daily Five before it had a name or structure. The problem, a good one albeit, is that I was having less time for meetings. I slowly began to realize that I had the strength within to fight this battle and didn't need to rely on meetings or an organization. I just had to rely on the commitment, dedication, an effort within myself, and the grace from God above. And this isn't meant to downgrade AA or anyone who works the AA program. I think the program is great and helps so many people. But it isn't the program for me. And that's okay. Recovery isn't a one-size-fits-all answer. My program isn't for everyone, and I'm okay with that. I want my program to be a complement to AA or an alternative for the people that can't attend AA meetings or work the program for whatever reasons. There's so many different recovery programs out there, we can all live in harmony. Honestly, having more options only increases the chances of people getting the necessary help. Think about it in terms of fitness. Some people lift weights, some people do triathlons, some people do yoga, some swim, and others do burpees and handstand push-ups. And they all do it with one goal in mind, physical fitness. Doesn't make one better than the other. People do what's best for them. And that's all I'm doing, offering a solution to others that has worked best for me. I really hope you've enjoyed the episode. As I mentioned at the beginning, 
I'd love to hear any success stories or hurdles you've had with the Daily Five. You can email me at jareth at recoveryroadpodcast.com, message me on Facebook, or on the new Instagram page, Recovery Road Podcast. You can also call or text me at 504-250-5104. I really hope you'll join me next week as I share more of my journey, answer some tough questions regarding a life of recovery, and take a more micro look at the Daily Five. And if I can ask two more favors, please, please, please share the podcast. And also, if you have the time, please write an honest comment on the Apple Podcast platform. I really hope I'll see you next week on Recovery Road, the intersection of life and sobriety. Mm -hmm.